Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos from KQED's politics team. And I'm Scott Schaefer, KQED's politics editor. And today on The Breakdown, it has been a week of tears, anger, protest in Sacramento, culminating Thursday with the funeral of Stephon Clark. Yeah, we're going to dedicate the show really to this issue today of police shootings. Uh, Stephon Clark is 22 years old, was shot and killed by Sacramento police in his grandmother's backyard about two weeks ago. Uh, They thought he had a gun, they say, but it turned out he only had a cell phone. Um, We'll get into sort of the bigger issue of police shootings in a bit. But first, we have our Sacramento politics reporter, Katie Orr, on the line from up there. Hey, Katie. Hey, guys. Hey. So, Katie, you've been out there all week at the protest. You were at the funeral today. You live in Sacramento. and Can you kind of just paint a picture of what it's been like up there and, and kind of what it feels like as a member of the community? It's been a tense time up here. I mean, especially for the African-American community, just listening to them at the meetings and at the rallies. They're tired of this and they're scared. I think that's the thing that's really stuck with me. You hear a lot of, um, is my son next? Is my daughter next? Am I next? You know, they don't trust the police and they're angry. Um, There have been a lot of raucous protests. Um, But today at the funeral... It was more about the grief. I mean, people were really, they lost someone that they cared about a lot. um, And hundreds of people turned out for this today. Uh, They let 500 in the church, and then they were at capacity, and there were still a a couple hundred outside. Um, It was a a massive turnout. And Katie, I know you were at the city council meeting on Tuesday night when uh, the uh, brother of Stefan Clark, uh, Stevante Clark, uh, came to the front of the room and sat right in front of the mayor, uh, Daryl Steinberg. And he had today at the funeral as well. Uh, he came up and uh, sort of took over and started talking about his brother. And I want to play a clip from Reverend Al Sharpton, who was there, uh, who spoke and said this right after uh, Stephon Day Clark spoke. You don't tell people in pain how to handle their pain. You don't tell people when you kill their loved one how to grieve. And, Katie, that was really speaking, I think, to uh, those who may have seen the grief and the way it was expressed and and think it was somehow inappropriate, right? Yeah, I think so. And you heard that uh, sentiment echoed uh, earlier this week at the city council meeting because— from an outside perspective, Stevante's behavior looked a bit erratic, you know, chanting, but then becoming really somber, then making, you know, really valid points about the disparity in Sacramento between the rich and the poor, the black and the white communities. Um, 
but people at that meeting as well were saying, you know, he's grieving. This is his way of getting this out. His brother was just shot. And I think we see it, too, with the family. You know, they're really open to the media, but it's gotten so much attention that I think it's become pretty overwhelming for them. Yeah, I bet. And I mean, God, you can't tell anybody after losing a family member like that how to feel. Um, You know, I think one of the things that is interesting. I mean, there's so much about the shooting. The I think the body cam footage has helped sort of draw attention to what happened so quickly. Um, and we've also seen protesters really, I think, use some smart tactics to draw attention. They shut down two Kings games, essentially. Um, and then we've seen the Kings actually engage some promises to put money behind a Black Lives Matter group up there. Um, what like what are you seeing in terms of how effective this protest has been? Well, I think it has been effective. Um, They are changing the conversation. There is a group up here who was saying, uh, a community group of activists saying, we want this to become a movement, not just a moment. And so they're trying to think of ways to have lasting impact. I spoke to Mayor Daryl Steinberg today and asked him what he thought about this. And he said, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes there are things that matter more than the bottom line. Um, He did give credit to the Kings and the police for largely uh, letting protesters just do what they're going to do at the games and through the city as well. He says, particularly the police, if he think if they had gotten more involved, uh, Steinberg believes there would have been a riot. And so he says that the, the police department handled it very well and that the Kings, in stepping up and supporting uh, the protesters and the family, are handling it well uh, also. It's interesting. Daryl Steinberg, of course, has been mayor for maybe a couple of years at most. He was uh, Senate president pro tem uh, in the Senate uh, for several years. And, and I'm wondering if you've had a chance to talk to him about you know, the the change in role and what it's like to be now mayor and his thoughts about some of the efforts that failed uh, at getting some legislation passed around police reform when he was there. Yeah, um, I did. And he said that in his mind, bottom line, police groups have to be more open to transparency. He doesn't I asked them if he thinks these groups need less power. He says he doesn't see it that way. There's a place in politics for every side. You know, that's how you get good policy going back and forth. But he said the balance is off right now and it swings too much in favor of the police groups. And we have seen their power over the years, multiple bills um, aimed at um, body cameras and um, release of uh, police investigations, things of that nature. Personnel files, exactly. Those have all died. Um, We have seen just uh, recently some bills that will be coming up again, one from Nancy Skinner that would allow uh, public access to police investigations on things like uh, discipline um, uh, relating to deadly and serious use of force, uh, sexual assault against civilians, perjury, those kinds of things. Also, Assemblyman Kevin McCarty, who is from here in Sacramento, is reviving his bill that was killed last fall, which would allow uh independent investigators in some cases to take over um these uh crim- investigations into police shootings in some cases that yeah. bill last year was watered down and then eventually killed right and interestingly uh some of the watering down was supported by the attorney general who actually stepped in quickly to say he would investigate this shooting um just before we let you go Katie can you just give us a sense of what the mayor's been saying more broadly about this shooting and kind of what needs to happen i mean he is the leader of the city and he does oversee the police department. 
Yeah, and he was telling me that he thinks Sacramento really can be a model in dealing with these kinds of situations. He points to the fact that the police, uh, the chief of police asked the attorney general to oversee their investigation. The attorney general didn't approach them um, and that they released the body cam footage, which the Sacramento Police Department has been criticized for in the past, not releasing tapes in, in similar situations. So he is saying that they are trying to push for transparency and that it's difficult, but he thinks this is a, a moment where the city can really come together and unify as opposed to splintering. Thank you so much, Katie. Great work this week. We appreciate you being here. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk a lot more about those issues. We'll be joined by Oakland attorney John Burris. Uh, he has been suing police departments over civil rights issues and excessive force for decades. You are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Marisa Lagos. We're devoting the entire show today to the shooting death of Stefan Clark by Sacramento Police, uh, certainly one of the big stories dominating the news this week. And joining us now, Oakland civil rights attorney John Burris. Uh, he has represented many victims, as Marisa said, of excessive police force, uh, from Rodney King to the families of Oscar Grant, who, of course, was killed by BART police, and Mario Woods, uh, who was shot and killed by the SFPD. John Burris, uh, welcome to Political Breakdown. Good, good to be with you. Thanks for coming. <clears throat> Let me ask you, first of all, how would you grade the city of Sacramento as you've seen this unfold from the from the shooting and then in particular after the shooting in terms of the mayor, the police department uh, and, and how, how it's unfolding so far? Well, first off, I have to tell you that I've had a lot of experience with Sacramento PD. I have found them to be in the more recent cases I've had to be progressive, uh, thoughtful, uh, willing to change. Uh, surprisingly, they have uh, come to the table in cases that I've had. So. It's not surprising to me that the present mayor, as well as the police chief there, are interested in improving the situation and being controlled and being responsive and transparency, because those are the issues that we have been talking about, and they have agreed to it. So in that sense, I, I, I look very favorably uh, uh, upon the police and the, poli the police chief and the mayor's office. The thing that I really get that was really good is on is on the question of how do you control the protesters? Because what we have had in Oakland and with all the protests in San Francisco, we've had anarchists 
people who would mm-hmm. they'd be good protesters, mm-hmm. and then the anarchists would come in and take advantage of it. Well, I haven't seen that at all in Sacramento. I was thinking about that, too. It's it interesting. Se- it seems to be that these are people of the community who are expressing themselves, and they're not out to destroy anything. They just want to be heard. And the police allowing that to occur, uh, essentially you're getting cooperation because you're not breaking things down, you're not hurting people. So in that sense, I think the police have been good in allowing people to express themselves under a situation that is outrageous, that on his face, you know, notwithstanding whether the police, whatever the police thought, they may have thought at the time, the point is there's a young man that's dead and he, and he, was, he was unarmed and he was shot 20 times. Those are things that will cause people to go crazy and think that the system itself is reckless uh, in its evaluation of African-American lives. And so uh, these, this fact pattern has sort of opened up these wounds that people carry around almost in a paranoid state all the time. I'm always giving lectures to kids, young men, about being careful. Watch what you do with your hands. Watch what you are. Police are not out to get you, but they will get you. And if you step out of line in any kind of way or give the wrong impression, you, in fact, can be shot and killed like this case. I don't believe this young man came at them with his arm extended uh, with the, uh, to suggest in any way he was trying to do harm. If anything, he was trying to show them that I got a cell phone. And that's why it's him. But it was misinterpreted. So, yeah, I mean, when you, I guess, hear about this case, see this body cam footage, I mean, what strikes you about this? It was dark in that footage. The police were out looking for somebody who had basically been accused of vandalism. So right. not there was no report of a weapon. Right. I mean, but what is your sort of initial impression knowing what we do know at this point and understanding that more is probably to come out? Well, obviously more has come out and I don't have a chance to I haven't had a chance to analyze the, the data in the way that I normally would. But do you have a situation to me? that you obviously are looking for someone who is committing some mischievous-type work. That's not normally a deadly force kind of scenario. Right. So then, but then you have the officers. It is dark. What troubled me the most about this is that they were in a position of safety, and a person's coming toward them. There was nothing about that that would suggest that he was armed with a weapon. He put his hand up. Obviously, he was trying to show that he had a cell phone because he was telling me, show me your hands. So from my point of view, I thought that um, that the police should not have left the position of safety at the time and then fired whatever reasons. We know there's going to be at least one or two autopsies. The city, the county will do one, and I think there's an independent one also. What are you going to be looking for? What do you look for in those autopsies? Well, I tell you, I have to give second autopsies often, but I also go and photograph the body immediately and to see where the entry and exit wounds are because that will tell you a lot about it. So one of the things you want to find out is how close was the person? Are there any smoke uh, 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 from the gun that's nearby suggested within a couple of feet? Uh, You want to see where the entry and exit wounds are. But it's not as concerning to me in this case about the autopsy because— he was. We know he was shot multiple times, and we know he wasn't shot like within a foot or two. So that's not really the question. Of this, he's dead. If it's found that, say, he got shot in the back, well, that's different. Is that different? Oh, absolutely. And so you're looking to see where the entry and exit wounds are. If a person is shot straight on and it's tattooed around the chest area, that's that's one thing. On the other hand, if the person is shot in the back multiple times, that may suggest that he was in a different position. Now, I will tell you this. You can get shot and get spun around, and so that's not Mm -hmm. conclusive. But it is the kind of thing that, as a lawyer, you want to know. The second thing you want to know is what kind of drugs are on board. 
if there is alcohol, if there's drugs, because if there's a substantial amount of drugs on board, that might explain erratic behavior. So that a person who knows you don't present yourself in a negative way toward the police may not appreciate that if they're under the influence of mind-altering drugs such as methamphetamine or cocaine or something that might affect that. So I'd want to know all of that. So that's part of what you're trying to do is first let's find out what the physical evidence is. The autopsy and the drug uh, are part of the physical evidence. Once you get that, then the next thing I would do, if I didn't do that initially, I would take the video and, and go through and, and slow it down, enhance it, give it to a professional, which people I have on that work for me, so I get a better position of knowing what the officer actually saw so that I can see and make some assessment. Was it reasonable for him to believe that? Then, because the question is, what was this site? Was, this was a silver uh, an item. That Did it look like a gun? Did it offer a glint? And what was the position of the person's hands? How fast did those hands move? Did they move up really quickly so that you can misinterpret that? Or was it showing in such a way with palms out to show you that, look, this is, I got a cell phone because what an officer wants to know, where are your hands? Right. That's the first thing they want to know. Where are your hands? So you're talking about having video of this. And, and as somebody who's been working on these types of cases for decades, I mean, it seems like body cam, social media have really changed the game, both for folks in terms of, you know, the sort of social impact of these shootings, but also for the cases. I mean, is that really why you think this moment is coming right now where we're seeing these protests? Well, absolutely, because, look, I was involved in many substantial beatdown cases before Rodney King. But the vast majority of the world did not know of those kind of beatings right. by a police officer. Rodney Your first, you, when you were a prosecutor, you had a case, right? Where well, you I was a prosecutor, I had cases, but Rodney King, I was a defense lawyer at the time. I was a plaintiff counsel, so that was really the first, first case that I had that was a video camera. There was a case that I did, Melvin Black. You yeah. That? Okay. Yeah, that was one of my, my first foray into police stuff, but there was no video camera. Rodney King was the first video camera that was there that showed the complete beating. I will tell you that videos are substantial game changers. It doesn't necessarily end the story, but it gives you a contemporaneously look at the time that can be extraordinarily helpful. And, and so it can be helpful to the plaintiff or it can be detrimental. I think that cameras are good for both the police and for the plaintiff because I have walked away from cases when I've seen the video camera that demonstrates that I thought the police officer's conduct was proper. On the other hand, I've, walked, I've stayed in cases where I saw the camera say, wait a minute. How do you justify that? Right. So cameras are important. So that's one th- one distinction I want to talk to you about, which is I think, you know, for these protesters in a lot of cases, the only real justice would be prosecution of the police. But there's also just the issue of whether they're following policy and whether they should be police officers, right? I mean, they could be f- not prosecuted but still be disciplined. I mean, can you kind of explain, like, what's the distinction there? Well, the, the real distinction is this. The fundamental, a, a, the prosecutor, a police officer, you need evidence to demonstrate his proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That's extraordinarily difficult. Let me just interrupt you for a second. Is that for the jury or is that to, for the DA to press charges? Well, it, arguably it's for the jury, but the DA will say that I'm not going to bring the case unless I'm convinced that I can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Prosecuting police are very difficult. And I've been involved in countless cases I have sent to the DA. I've been very disappointed by their failure to prosecute these cases. But I also understand when we have tried to prosecute a case, we didn't do well. That was in the Oscar Grant case. And so, 
But I'll go back to the other point. Yes, you can be disciplined. You could have violated the practices of a department and still not get uh, prosecuted. Or you can be found responsible in a civil case, which are the cases I'm involved in, and not be punished and not be prosecuted. So there are different levels. But, I'm, but let me tell you one point that's more important in all of this. And that is you have to you want to look down the road to see if there was a violation of a, a, a policy or if the policy was inappropriate that you need to rewrite the policies so that you then can have some effect on future conduct. The most important case I can tell you all is the writer's case that we involved in Oakland. Yeah. Can and you even, explain to yeah, folks who may not be familiar? Four guys that at least four guys who engaged in a course of Ill, improper police conduct. We got I, I, we got a, a federal judgment uh, and then we got a, a, what they call a negotiated settlement agreement. But the important part is that we were able to rewrite the policies of the department uh, to retrain the officers on them and then to find out if they're in, complic- in compliance with that. It's taken a long time. And do you think Oakland's better? Oakland is substantially better. It, but for the sex case that happened a couple yeah. years ago, we would have been on a great, the right track. The right, the, the sex case got us off because now we're doing a lot of work on the racial profiling question, how officer procedural justice questions, how do you talk to people, consistency of discipline, the internal affair. It's a revamping of the department. Unfortunately, it's taken a long time to get it done, and it wasn't done with a lot of ease. It took time. Other than getting the attention of the police department and of the media, what are these big settlements uh, mean for a police department? Well, what it should mean is for the city. <laughs> the city is, is a question of risk management. And if a department is really good they uh, and, and thoughtful, they should look at settlements and or jury verdicts as a way to, ev- to, ev- to evaluate what they did wrong. The worst part of it uh, this scenario. If they say we got those because of John Burris or other lawyers like us, without really looking to see why that happened, because you should take advantage of a department, a police department, city should evaluate what were the fact patterns that existed within that particular case that got that large judgment or that large uh, jury verdict, and determine whether or not the policies that we had in place at the time were appropriate or not, or that or the policies might have been. Fine, but the officer did not act consistent with the policies. And so there's, there's great, it's up to the department themselves to look into themselves to see whether or not it's something that, that policies they have and or whether or not the officers themselves did not follow those policies. What brought you to this work specifically? Was there a case? Was there a moment? Well, you know, I'm uh, old enough to uh, be a person who observed the civil rights movement as a kid. You grew up in Vallejo, right? I grew up in Vallejo and I was Although Vallejo wasn't necessarily affected by the civil rights movement, I saw on television and I was able to see how law enforcement mistreated and misused people, and I could not relate to that. Then ultimately I was in Chicago, and believe it or not, uh, when um, real police brutality was taking place, not of the recent vintage, and it stuck a chord with me. And I have been a civil rights person and believing in civil rights issues my entire professional life. And I just happened to get caught up in the police issues because, I'll tell you, the most despised person in my experience in the whole system is an African-American male. And, 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 and I've become their champion because I know that if you don't have a champion, you will get misused in this system. And so that's why the people are upset because young men, and I'm upset because I see young men being killed and, uh, on a consistent basis arbitrarily, sometimes I think without just cause. They may, have done, they may not be the best person in the world, but there's nothing about 
what happened under the circumstances justified the killing of them. So it's a deep-seated issue with me. And I have lawyers who work for me, and they feel the same way. I bet. I mean, I'm curious, though. One of the things I've noticed in, you know, some of the Oakland and San Francisco cases, not just around police shootings, but around racial profiling, misconduct, is that it's not just the white officers doing it. Oh, absolutely. And I just, is it, it what is it? Is it the culture of power? I mean, how it, do you explain the, that? I view it as, as there's an implicit racial bias in the culture of a department. And that's how they do business. That, and I'm not calling names. I'm saying that's what has happened historically in a department. You come into that department as a young officer, black or white, you can buy into that culture. And you then see things through the perspective of that culture. So, you know, we, you know, in Oakland, we found, you know, as we started gathering data and looking at some of the tapes, the procedural justice tapes, we saw that black officers frequently will behave toward black people and uh, as much the white people do. Yeah. And so it's, it's the culture of the department that you're trying to change and you're trying to weed out this whole notion that you have to look at ethnic groups in a certain way. One of the things I do when I talk to young people who want to be officers, I say, look, you need to learn the culture. This is white young uh, guys. You need to learn the culture of the community in which you are going to serve. Mm -hmm. Just because a black person has his pants hanging down or he has a certain thing, that doesn't mean they're a bad person. You need to know that culture and know the language of the culture, the walk of the community, so that you're in a better position to make assessments and you may not be as frightened by the differences, because it's the differences that will cause you to overreact to a given situation. You've been doing this for almost 40 years. Not, Absolutely. Not, and I'm wondering, you, I don't know how many cases like this, uh, the stuff on Clark One, the, the Rodney King, the writers, how many of those you've done. But I, I'm wondering, do you feel like it takes a toll on you personally as an African-American male? Uh, the emotion. I mean, we saw it today at the funeral, but every family goes through this, well, whether or not they rise to the level of media attention. Look, it's hurtful to me. When I go to a funeral and see young black men dead, it's hurtful to me. I did this case yesterday uh, where a 32-year-old man was shot and killed, sh shot three times in the back by, by the um, Vallejo PD. It's, it's painful to me. It's hurtful to me uh, as, because that's a, a life that's destroyed. And the collateral damage of the death is what I don't think is appreciated because it does affect the children, the grandparents, the mothers, the fathers, the uncles, and it, it affects the, the, the stability of the family, the harmony of a family. So I've, I, I got it. I mean, I know that these things stretch beyond, and I've seen the pain on the mothers and the pain on the, grandpa, the grandparents, and I go to these, and I go to the funerals, but more importantly, and so therefore, I become their champion, because I feel very strongly that we cannot, someone has to stand up or as John Lewis would say, make them uncomfortable. I may not be able to win, but I want you to be very uncomfortable because you just can't kill this person and think nobody's going to care about it. And that's why I find that the, the, the cameras are so important or the press conferences that we have. Because if you don't, you get police will give a statement out saying this is how it happened. Yeah. But if you don't have someone that says, no, it didn't happen that way, then it, it the, the people are felt the pain and no recourse. And so... I'm their champion in many ways. So what makes, I mean, we've talked about the, the cameras and maybe that's it, but why, I mean, the Vallejo case you just mentioned, it's been in the press, but it's not, there's not protest out there. Um, that man was shot in the back. I mean, what, what's the difference, do you well, think? Well, some of the difference is um, uh, who the person is to some extent, but more important, the cameras do a, uh, play a big part and the egregiousness of the circumstances. Look, I did a case up when I was talking about in Sacramento. Uh, a homeless guy gets chased down by Sacramento PD. He's shot down. Okay, 
we do this case. It gets some public attention around there. This is on camera, right? This mm-hmm. is camera. But there wasn't. Sacramento people didn't come out in great protest. Right. They didn't come out. Now, he was a 45-year-old homeless guy, you know, uh, and wasn't doing it. But the, the difference here, this is a young man. In his grandmother's backyard. His, I mean, I think so that— So location and stuff counts. Yeah. And so he's at home. He's at his place. Now, all the actual facts of that case we don't really know yet— that might give a different scenario, but that's what the lawyers have to do. I don't, and sometimes, unfortunately, the community is not ready for the actual facts of a case. You know that that part it becomes a challenge because they 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 know that the homicide has taken place, but they don't really appreciate the nuances of what a police officer's rights are. We have just a little over a minute left, but I want to ask you, you know, as you sit here and once again we're having this conversation about a police shooting, do you feel optimistic? Uh, or do you really feel despair? No, I don't feel despair. Look, I look at this in a historical context. There, every generation has to move the social justice tra- chain forward. And it has always been the way that way. There's going to be some people who are going to move it. Things are going to happen that will cause it to move. And so I don't feel despair. I feel that I, this is just my time. There will be others, the, the lawyers that I'm training now, it will be their time. To move it along. And I don't, and, and before me, there were lawyers that I understood and looked at that respected that helped move me and move the social agenda. So, no, I, I just figured that it's a matter of historical significance, that people uh, have to participate when it's their time to do it. And, and, and when you do what you can do, then you move over and the next person steps up. Well, we're going to end it on that optimistic note. Civil Rights Attorney John Burris, thank you for coming in. Thanks so much. Thank you. That will do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Katie Orr is our politics reporter in Sacramento, our producer, Guy Marzarati, and our engineer today, Seal Muller. Uh, Ethan Lindsay is our managing editor. Holly Kernan is our vice president of news. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Follow me on Twitter at Scott Schaefer. That's a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. We will see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.